Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read Left Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin from 1920. This is part one of two of our long section-by-section discussion. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa, and joining me tonight is Donald. Hey, it's Donald, also from Communist League of Tampa. And Lexi. Hey, it's Lexi, undialectical in practice. And tonight we are discussing Lenin's tract, Left Communism and Infantile Disorder. Um, the term infantile disorder became somewhat famous. Uh, isn't that isn't that like a mistranslation? I've heard I've heard different like debates about this. I don't know. Yeah, it's supposed to be called. I think it was called left wing communism, a disease of childhood, or something like that. Is the correct um, is the correct term? I know it was also the the namesake of the uh, infamous uh, Facebook group embracing the infantile. Oh, God, uh, let's not talk about that. Right? <laughs> the Far more interesting things to talk about than that. Okay. Um, so it's very famous because left communism, I think, has gained some level of vogue in recent years online. Although, you know, what left communism is kind of covers, you know, at least in contemporary parlance, a pretty broad spectrum, like everything from... Or it's do you a lot different to... even from what Lenin is talking about in this piece because the early, the actual original left communists actually originally really supported Bolshevism and they saw themselves as like the true Bolsheviks. And yes, although there is a difference between the way that the Dutch, Ger- the Dutch German Council Communists and the Italians deal with the 1921 Bolshevization. Which, yes, exactly. It, it's, but it's initially, pretty... the German Dutch are pro-Bolshevik. Right. They well, initially, the IW... The, I mean, the IWW and, like, the, you know, Debs, and it was sort of uh, um, before the crushing of the Soviets. It was sort of a universal mood along, um, among not just socialists, but even a lot of liberals. Had it's, it. what you would well, expect. Understanding... it's what you'd expect from the left in response to any kind of, like, international, vaguely... Or any other sort of vaguely leftist uprising anywhere. I mean, you know, we got people here who are today are excited for you know stuff like Rahava or uh, you know even less promising things like Podemos or fucking Greece or any of that. So it makes sense that pretty much everybody once something like this happens, you know, pretty much everybody, uh, regardless of their sort of affiliation on the spectrum of like the far left, would be you know, enthusiastic about it. Yeah, there was the internal opposition, like left-com opposition, but it wasn't until the crushing of the Soviets that you saw more of a an international kind of like anti-Bolshevik Marxist communist. Well, what, really, what really made the split happen was the new economic policy. That is when the left communists like decided that it was officially state capitalism in Russia and therefore Lenin was rep- – not the Italian left communists, but like the German-Dutch left communists – 
it was really the new economic policy or they decided you know, no more is Moscow our place because the KAPD actually supported the suppression of Kronstadt, like the German left communist party. So there is a lot of, um, there is a kind of sense where the left communists, because Lenin wrote this piece, are seen as rabid anti-Bolsheviks. That really wasn't the thing. It was more so, I think, they were kind of mixing their own ideas of cynicalism with elements of Bolshevism and interpreting Bolshevism through those lenses. Right. And throughout the text, Lenin talks about how these different groups praise the Bolsheviks, and he wishes that he almost seems like they, he seems to think they almost kind of want to bury him with praise to a certain extent, and he feels like they're kind of ignoring their concrete example. Um, yes, yes, but, this is where Lenin kind of sits down and says, "All right, so you guys want to make a revolution? Well, you know the tactics you're trying to do right now are not going to win. You know we won in Russia, and while you know we may not we don't have identical circumstances, we are the current standing best example of how to win." And how we won was through a mixture of legal and illegal struggles protracted over time to eventually win, you know, hegemony in the working class. And this meant, you know, working in unions and running in elections and taking every, you know, opportunity to use whatever tactic we could. And this thing could very easily have a sense of, hey, we got our shit together. What the fuck is your problem? You know what I mean? But he seems very sympathetic to the nuances of, you know, different, you know, revolutionary developments between different countries. And he alludes to it and I think does a pretty decent job of tactfully not straying too far into offering prognostications on what other people should do in their particular circumstances while still kind of defending certain, I guess you could say, invariant principles by yes, which. exactly. He's kind yeah, of defending that... like a principle upon which you can base a strategy. That's what I found uh, interesting this time, because last time I was reading it, I got more of the sense that he was generalizing too much. But reading it this time, I mean, one can disagree with certain well, that's what, generalizations. Yeah, like, but I mean, I, you know, I kind of agreed with Gerda, like, looking at looking at the way, like, um, I don't know, like, if you think about the American situation, I know it's like, it's kind of different, but like, you know, we have to take part in the most reactionary like institutions as long as the workers are there with this, ex you know, I guess at that time, it's not the democratic party, but that's, what's like hovering over my head when I, when I'm reading this. And so there are ways of reading this that could lead one to think that wherever any fragments, uh, the biggest fragment of the masses are. That's where you oh, go. Oh, yeah, and I've seen... Um, it's a highly opportunist. I've seen, yeah, I've seen Maoists use his piece to justify, like, saying it's okay to vote for the Democrats and justify working in, like, Democrat NGOs and stuff. Like, so, yeah, towards the end, there's, yeah. a, there's a real danger of this, and so I guess that was... It's a danger in how the text is used, I think, in the way that... Because Lenin, basically what he's saying is that there's a right deviation... Of the Kotskyists who are overly, um, you know, they're overly complacent with the bourgeoisie and they're not actually willing to push for revolution. But then you have the left deviation, which is kind of, you know, being so, being, you know, so um, left wing basically that you can't actually function strategically, I think is what he's saying. Like you have to, you know, derive your, your tactics from the actual circumstances you're in, not from these kind of universal historical principles. 
so what actually prompted Lennon to write this specifically? Do we know? Um, I mean, I know it was basically just political struggles in the common turn, you know, okay. the whole, you know, basically the, the the emergence of a left opposition within the common turn before of a Trotskyist left opposition, but like the original left opposition tendency in the common turn. And he's speaking more to the German Dutch and the British communist left and the Italians, even though he does disagree with Bordiga's abstentionism. Bordiga still accepts that they're going to run candidates and runs candidates in order to maintain unity with the international. And so he's not willing to split with the common turn on that issue, even though he disagrees with it. But he's, so Lenin is really talking more to the, the people who are on principle against electoralism. Okay. Um, so section one, subtitle is, in what sense can we speak of the international significance of the Russian Revolution? And basically in this section, Lenin argues that the Russian Revolution has lessons to teach all workers, and its accomplishments can't really be reduced to some provincial eccentricities. Um, he also says, once other countries successfully have their revolutions, Russia will again be the backwater of the international workers' movement, but for the moment, it's at the forefront. Uh, and that's just kind of, I think, setting the stage of trying to understand how he conceptualizes you know, the way that the Russian Revolution will relate to um, future revolutions in this current moment. Yeah, it is definitely that, is, that a... is um, a perspective of world revolution. But it's yeah, not like there's going to be one big world revolution all at once. I think the Bolsheviks had realized, you know, that at this point, like, there isn't going to be spontaneous worldwide revolution. And then we can just, you know, you know, say workers arise, join the common turn, and everyone's just going to join up in the overthrow of the state. I think there was that illusion in the early common turn, I think. And I think a lot of left communism is actually kind of like a continuation of that illusion. Okay, so section two is basically um, an essential condition. It's a little meatier. An essential condition of the Bolshevik success. Um, and he says, quote, I'm just going to read it at length. The dictatorship of the proletariat was, means a most determined and most ruthless war waged by the new class against a more powerful enemy, the bourgeoisie, whose resistance is increased tenfold by their overthrow, even if only in a single country, and who, whose power lies not only in the strength of international capital, the strength and durability of their international connections, but also in the force of habit and the strength of small-scale production. I repeat. The experience of the victorious dictatorship of the proletariat in Russia has clearly shown, even to those who are incapable of thinking or have had no connection to give thought to the matter, that absolute centralization and rigorous discipline of the proletariat are an essential condition of victory over the bourgeoisie. Um, yeah, and that would be an example where I think the left communists and Lenin agreed. Like the left communist, at least Hermann Goerder, who most, you know, the guy who wrote the response to this, he says, oh, we're for a centralized party. We want iron discipline. We just want the right leaders. And the leaders and our parties are too influenced by social democratic traditions. And I think Lenin is almost making the opposite argument because in part one, he quotes Karl Kotsky, um, you know, Slavs and Revolution, where Kotsky actually kind of predicts Russian Revolution kind of being the vanguard of a world revolution at one point. And a while back, and he says, oh, how well Karl Kotsky wrote 18 years ago. And so I feel like the, that Kotsky is a really big factor in this in this um, piece. And this is kind of where Lenin reveals that he never really stopped being a Kotskyist in a certain sense. I mean, obviously, he turns against Kotsky and thinks that he's a scab and a renegade. But nonetheless, he doesn't completely dismiss Karl Kotsky's previous thought. And I think a lot of the um, lessons of the Second International 
and the stuff that Kotsky writes about in Road to Power, that, that stuff is Lenin's trying to kind of reintegrate that back into the Bolshevik message, you know, and trying to kind of take those positive lessons from the Second International and then, you know, use those to learn the strategic lessons that, you know, the Comintern can use to wage world revolution. Yeah, you could read this entire text as a defense of uh, the the merger formula, like Redux. Yes, which that's is, why I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the major strength of the text. However, if we're going to attempt a critique, we could go back to what Jake was saying about uh, absolute centralization and rigorous discipline. Uh, now, there's obviously a need for some form of rigorous discipline, and but there's a whole Marxist problem with the word centralization and centralized power and the way that this evolves over the years. There's, I think, even in like yeah. Marx and Engels, there's a comment that Marx makes really kind of enthusiastically about the most rigorous centralization that ends up having like a footnote on it eventually and being like, well, you know, not, not like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're talking about the uh, address to the Communist League, I think, where Engels later goes in and says, well, actually, you know, not necessarily the most rigorous centralization. <laughs> not because... the most rigorous centralization. Well, he says um, that he uses the example of the um, French Revolution. He says it was like the local municipal councils and stuff like that where some of the most radical aspects of the revolution emerged. And so you, we don't necessarily want to, you know, have a complete centralization or kind of a mix of centralization and decentralization. The idea of the Soviets and that prominence in Bolshevism kind of shows understanding of that. Right. And that, and so when he's talking about the nature of the proletarian dictatorship and how there's a, a balance of power um, in some way, that part of the text is undermined significantly by the course of events. And one can say that, you know, the Bolsheviks had good reason to cross the Soviets and that reactionaries would have done it anyway, that history played out the way it did. And so that, to me, undercuts the force of of his come on guys don't worry about it we just really need an absolute centralization that's where i would start with a critique well not... i think it's not so much that the bolsheviks crushed the soviets as the soviets just became shells of the party in a way for the party because after the left srs were banned and after factions were banned you know that basically made soviet democracy impossible because you have no parties and choices to vote for because you only have one you know unified Party. Well, I mean, right, but, <laughs> but so it's, yeah, it's not the, like the, the overall crackdown on democracy makes makes it a, a a problem. And I understand that there's a civil war and there's a there's a, a counter argument, but you well, know, you could it, say it, the left SR is basically you know fucked the Bolsheviks. <laughs> I mean, they did start like a terrorist campaign against yeah. them when they were initially in a coalition government. To be fair, yeah, they declared it open conflict with the government, but the fact that it became a principle to have, you know, one party and no factions yeah, I is, think that, a, is that a big is problem. That becomes a problem, yeah. It's it, a necessity it, that becomes turned into a virtue. And it un it undermines the defense of the proletarian dictatorship here in a way I that say, Lenin wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to predict because I don't uh, – I don't know. It's one of these things where you have Schrodinger Lenin, right? Like the whole reason that Lars Lee is interesting is that he really tries to show like Lenin, Lenin the Democrat in a way. Um, when when you get into the later stages of Lenin's life, you really don't get that sense anymore. And so the question is for historians and for people trying to interpret 
uh, Lennon's role in history, to what degree was he like waiting in the wings for the right moment to institute his crazy ass dictatorship? Or, you know, did he assume and, you know, later just kind of lose his innocence that there would be like a significant democratic component that would, you know, continue? And when you read this text, you, know, you don't necessarily get an answer to that, but you get an answer of like what it would ideally kind of be like. This is 1920, right? This is before the polarization. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to remember. Like, I'm thinking it's, that was it's kind of around, like, very tumultuous year for the revolution, you know. And it is really you're starting to see like the formation of a dictatorship of commissars. And I mean, every know. every year was kind of tumultuous. I mean, well, yeah, but it, it's it, this is where you really see the you know, there is a rising red bureaucracy, and, I, and Lenin realizes this. Like, he calls it a uh, workers a de- he kind of calls the Soviet Union a deformed worker state before Trotsky does. Or a degenerated worker state, like he says, it's a worker state aspects of bureaucratic degeneration, is how he described the Soviet state at this point. And so I don't think he's necessarily arguing for the you know fair current model of society as what people should follow, but he's just trying to say, listen, there are certain lessons that the Bolshevik Party has learned that are actually universally applicable. And so it's kind of an argument that. Through making the revolution, you, you can certain that they have basically learned universal principles. And I think this is kind of similar to what Marx does with the Paris Commune, where he takes the Paris Commune and he, he uses it to kind of, you know, update Marxism with regards to the state, for example. Like he uses the experience of that revolution, and he, through that, he's able to determine more about what the dictatorship of the proletariat is. And I feel like that's kind of what Lenin is doing with regards to a, like a revolutionary strategy. There's something else I'd like to turn to in this quote, um, because he talks about this kind of throughout the text, um, which is the problem of expropriating like the small proprietors in the sort of yes, middle strata of capitalist society. Um, and you know, I wonder how much how much of that he is he lumping them in with the peasantry like in this particular circumstance or is he only talking about like the city sent the city-based like small proprietors um i think he's talking about the peasantry as well yeah i mean that's it that seems like a really dangerous kind of boundary to blur and even throughout this piece and we might get to this later but you even start to see the beginning of kind of kulak thought well i can i think that actually was one of the more interesting like aspects of the text yeah, that abstraction is helpful because it takes um, the idea of the small property owner and small property interest beyond the Russian context into yeah, a way that's applicable to something and he, like. And he's also kind of showing like advanced capitalism. How, and he's showing how you can overthrow the bourgeoisie but still like have to struggle against capitalism, and that's because the small proprietors still have a monopoly on intellectual means of production, essentially. Um, this, this, all, this doesn't just include peasants, but also includes, like, you know, state bureaucrats, um, you know, aspects of the civil service, like specialists in industry. Those people would be considered petty proprietors by Lenin, I'd say. And but there, really, is something, there is something about that that is distinct from the peasantry. And I think the problem, um, you know, of the peasantry in you know, core imperialist countries is different from what it was in Russia. If you if you blend the peasantry and the small proprietors together, you know, you still see, you see the traces of, you know, the Communist Party in Russia's, you know, sort of schizophrenic relationship, you know, mm. to democracy and the peasantry. But, um, 
underpinning this piece a little bit. And, you know, that's kind of one of the problems with it um, that, you know, would never really be satisfactorily resolved in the history of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I that's kind of also part of Gerger's critique is he says that, well, the Russian situation was unique because you could ally with the peasantry and our peasants aren't good. You know, they won't align with us. They have they're mostly like well to do, actually, a lot of them. And so but in, in a way that would make his argument that, you know, that basically the small proprietors as a whole are struggled against in the transition. I feel like once in in the dictatorship of the proletariat, the class struggle actually becomes more of a class struggle against forms of small property. It's just that class struggle doesn't it takes a different form, I think. Sure, but that's easier when the middle the you know the petty bourgeoisie are minority minority class. Um, yeah. But I, I and that actually does tie in what Gorder said there, and I didn't read the Gorder piece for this, but it does kind of tie to something Slenis says in this very section where he basically argues that the possibility of the development of the revolution in Russia rests on the long history of resistance to brutal czarism and the political immigration, which led to linking the Russian vanguard internationally uh, from the 15 years of political chaos that existed from 1903 to 1917. So sort of peasant resistance to czarism did foster like this very like um, fertile revolutionary environment. Well, I don't think it would have it wouldn't have happened without the peasants. You know, right. the peasants were huge. The fact that you know the Bolsheviks were you know they took up part of the peasants program. Yeah, the left SR program. Yeah. Yeah, that was what allowed them to kind of make the revolution. And then the question after that, you know, becomes how do we kind of balance the peasant and the power of the peasant and the proletarian. You know, how much power do we give the peasantry at, at the expense of, you know, the proletariat? How much power do we give the proletariat at the expense of the peasantry? Well, and, and that's why that's why they that's why they fear the left SR so much. And that's why yeah. they kind of feared anybody who could develop some kind of base in the peasantry. It was really symptomatic of the extreme political precariousness, not only of the Bolsheviks, but of the working class itself in Russia at the time. But um yeah, let's yeah. see. In this section I'm sorry, Lexi. Oh, yeah. Any government has to have some certain principles that are more or less not negotiable, um, you know, especially to uphold some kind of economic formation, be it like a class mode of production or an attempt at a classless society. Um, but beyond that, you can't have, especially when a, you're thinking about the, the way that the peasantry gets expropriated by capitalists or by Stalinists or what any like realistic option for a better future would be struggling against small proprietors and capitalism. You can't have this like tight butthole iron discipline about all this stuff. You, oh, it yeah, has to be an open democratic environment or else they will be an open rebellion. Well, that in, no, I mean, yeah, no way around it. Democratic, you know, oversight is part of how you fight the power of small proprietors, such as bureaucrats and stuff. But if you lump in the peasants with the small proprietors, and you're a, the working class is an extreme minority in the, in the society, and you're trying to preserve working class hegemony, that it, it contains implicitly anti-democratic. Well, uh, right. I mean, but th that would be the point. But of the peasantry can be turned to reaction by the petty bourgeois. That's the thing, is that there is that possibility that you know all of the specialists and small proprietors were team up with peasant revolts to try to overthrow. You know, that was kind of what was, was, you know, a big part of this. And, you know, there is a, that element, you know, of war communism in here. It's kind of what I was getting at. Sure, but 
at some point, the same reason that you're not going to be able to vote in capitalism in the communist democracy is the same is something like the same reason we can't vote in communism in capitalist democracy. Um, there's like, one more thing in this section I kind of wanted to get at before we move forward. Um, I thought Lenin's like um, argument of where discipline comes from was really interesting, and it basically breaks down to three things: one, working hard; two having a broad base in the masses of working people beyond the proletariat and three being right all the time. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't use those right exact words, but that's basically what he says. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I find a little bit unconvincing about this in parts is where it's just kind of like, yeah, you, know, you just need to do it better. You just need to do better. We hustled for this shit. And you know, it, it is, there is a little bit of, um, the, the facts on you know iron discipline and that stuff are annoying, but I mean it's it's like not I just said, annoying. It's, 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 it's frightening, and it's sort of like it shows you what's what goes wrong in in Lenin, like IRL, not just on paper, like and how I mean, we would how we would improve on his formulations. I mean, it has you know has to be put out there. Like there's there's a role for discipline, but he's not just talking about like a well structured society or what well structured party it's it it's more than that like it's well uh, i mean let's let's really put this in historical context though in the ruhr in germany it's 1920 in the ruhr in germany you would literally have a red army fighting against a fascist putsch you sure. have a literal class war occurring in europe essentially i'm i'm, I'm and lenin I'm, is really he's looking at the the common turn at this point they collectively see themselves as, you know, the general staff of the world revolution. And we can say this is, you know, not the right way to think of things. This was, you know, incorrect. And I actually think there's a lot of truth to those criticisms of the common turn. But at the same time, we kind of have to look at it from Lenin's perspective. You know, iron discipline, you know, makes sense for his perspective because he's trying to basically lead a world revolution from Europe. Well, well I'm, I'm, not saying, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that... Um... There isn't actually truth to what he's saying, or even that he's wrong necessarily. I just feel like in a tract in part sort of attempting to explain what made Russia so successful, that that particular component wasn't super convincing to me. That's it's all not, I was saying. It's not only well, not think, convincing; it's like symptomatic of the problem. And uh, I, I wanted. I don't know uh, if you go that far, but go on. Well, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm reading. I have like a the the Tucker edition of like selected Lenin, and there's like an interesting footnote on like right i don't know it's like section at the end of section five and um it's talking about um at the ninth congress of the party in april 1920 there was a small opposition which spoke against the dictatorship of the leaders and the oligarchy and the the footnote sounds kind of badass uh referring to what was called the democratic centralism group uh sapornov uh smirnov so this is, I think, uh, Robert Tucker, um, quote, uh, they denied the leading role of the party in the Soviets and the trade unions, rejected the need for one-man management and personal responsibility in guiding the enterprises, opposed Lenin's policy in organizational questions, and demanded freedom for factions and groupings in the party. Um, so, like, when, I'm, when I read something like that, and it's contrasted with the Lenin talking about the iron discipline necessary. I guess I would still like, I don't, I think that Lenin by taking it to a more, ge more general place is interesting because 
if anything, like the critiques of communism from inside Russia also provide a sort of general blueprint, even though Lenin is at war and in civil war. This is still an important critique from within and doesn't actually get totally suspended by the conditions of war because it does turn out to be a problem. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the uh, the decision to ban factions was obviously an incorrect decision. I think that that was where London went wrong, for example. But I just think that, you know, we need to look beyond kind of just, you know, the stereotypical iron discipline version of Lenin. Like, kind of look beyond the surface of the text to kind of find what his more powerful arguments are, you know? Yeah, I, I think this put some of that stuff in because, there, though. I mean, it's not, like, there, there is some truth to that stereotype. I mean, oh, yeah, I'm not saying, I mean, you know, it's, 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 Today, you know, we're in very different conditions, you know. Okay, right. I understand. Like, and there's, there's good reasons for Lenin to hang, have this, you know, a desire for discipline and centralization, you know, because the common turn is running military operations at this time. For certain. And seeing it from Lenin's point of view, that does make sense. Seeing it from our point of view, 100 years later, after, you know, Stalin yeah. and Mao, you know, that's... It's going to come up. And, like, because of that stuff, I really think the second half is, like, a lot stronger because he's talking more about trade unions. And he's really talking about, like, what what to do with trade unions and why. Well, yeah, that's, what, that's what to do with other parties and why. And the reasons don't all hold up, but I think he reaches, like, important conclusions. Like, yeah. Even though I have problems with it, the way he articulates, along at least the way, at least if you're going to redeploy this text now, um, you have some, you have to remake some of these arguments. So section. Uh, all right, well, we'll get to them as we get through this. <laughs> so section three, um, the principal stages in the history of Bolshevism. Um, I think for the reasons we just kind of discussed, like in this section, Len used like uses like a lot of military imagery. And he likens the period following the 1905 revolutionary attempts to a period of a retreating army. And he claims that the Bolsheviks retreated the best and thus suffered the fewer, fewest losses, and that they, quote, exposed the revolutionary phrase mongers, quote, who rejected legal work. Any thoughts on this section? Yeah, I thought that was actually one of my favorite metaphors that he gives is the, re the, the retreat. He says we have to be able to retreat, but actually be able to retreat properly. And the left communists only want to be on the offensive and they don't understand how to retreat, how, you know, when it's not time to take power and, you know, wage civil war, what do you do? What do you do when you actually have to, when you, you have your forces take losses and you need to like rebuild your strength? Well, there's, there's not even a we in a political situation without like a, with some kind of institutional memory of yeah. how to f fight and what to do. Not even, and so that's what I think is useful about that metaphor. You know, for the Bolsheviks, it ends up not totally being a metaphor, but in terms of like the way that you need a coherent thing to be able to attack and retreat, that is important. That's the party, whatever you want to call yeah, that. That's that's and that's where Kotsky's influence, I think, is important here. You know, that's where the road to power and you know the life of August Bebel, you know, is is you know kind of shown to still be an influence on Lenin's thought. And I think that's kind of where the most valuable stuff is, because he's you know looking at what does the party do in retreat, what does the party do in times of social peace, 
And I guess the left communist argument is typically like in times of social peace and non-revolutionary times, the party can only be a small minority vanguard of the most pure workers. And the party can't, you know, work in trade unions and it can't, you know, work with social democratic parties and united fronts because, you know, that's, you know, breaking with purity, you know, that's breaking with the already turning of principles. Well, I mean, to, to set it, to set it a little more seriously, it would be, you know, that we're reinforcing, like, we're not helping. Like, there's, there's a sense towards the end. There's a sense towards the end that Lenin's Lenin's like, look, if, uh, you know, the equivalent of Bernie Sanders or whatever flops, that's just going to help the far left. That's just going to help communism because it'll be like, see, I told you so. But I don't know if that dynamic plays out how we would want it to. A lot of times you might you will see like zigzagging. And if people see a soft left option fall down, they don't necessarily go hard left. That is true. That is true. That Lenin does have maybe too much. I don't know. Seeing the way things are playing out right now, it seems like some do and some don't. Like I don't know if the, I, yeah. I I still know what the breakage is on that. But well, and it's also sure. just there's no real left wing oppositional party in our society that can kind of you know put out like meaningful positions on these things. Right. And yeah, that's Bolsheviks yeah. and in this situation they did. Yeah, and he, even putting Bernie there was sort of, you know, a stretch. And I think another another thing that he kind of um, takes from the history of Bolshevism that he thinks is, you know, unique is kind of how the Bolsheviks had the struggle against the Mensheviks before they had the struggle, you know, against the bourgeoisie, basically. And he says that because of, you know, of this, because you had the Bolshevik-Menshevik split, Russian social democracy therefore able to take a more like radical stance against social chauvinism and social patriotism because you know Lenin had you know actually fought this factional battle and so you know he kind of you know one point references the um you know people kind of from Europe would be like oh Lenin's so sectarian he's you know he's he's dividing the movement so much but in a way what you know what he ended up doing was you know helping create a movement that was better able to resist, you know, social patriotism and resist World War One. Yeah, there's this heightened the contradictions sort of sense to that. Like, like, there wasn't, you know, powerful enough of an opposition faction in the SPD, I think, is what, kind of like what he would be saying, or, or a true, you know, Marxist, you know, faction. The fight that actively fights against, you know, revisionism or whatever, wherever it comes from. So, section four is titled "The Struggle: the, Str- ah, the Struggle Against Which Enemies Within the Working Class Movement Helped Bolshevism Develop, Gain Strength, and Become Steeled." Um, and he kind of starts it out with this um, maneuver where he basically brings up the idea of petty bourgeois revolutionism, and kind of pins that to anything he doesn't like. So, like, anarchism and certain parts of social democracy and the left SRs are basically all lumped in as, like, petty bourgeois revolutionists. Yeah. Um, which there's certainly some truth to that. Um, yeah, and, and, and again, the uh, anyone who is capable of condemning on principle the, the terror of the Great French Revolution or the terror employed by a victorious revolutionary party uh, will— I don't know, just basically will be uh, ridiculed and laughed to scorn by Plekhanov or something like that when he was still a Marxist, something like that. Like, it's another another one of those things that gnaws at you. Like, it's not on principle that you're against, like, any kind of, you know, serious action, but, you know, 
there are parts of the French Revolution that you could object to on principle. Like, yeah. Yeah, but I think um, what he's kind of more importantly saying is that, like, this left communist tendency, this this tendency for um, being, you know, of, of this left deviation where you will, I think what's at the core of it is kind of over-reliance on direct action, believing that direct action is, like, the one thing that matters and that electoralism and, you know, other forms of political struggle beyond direct action are, you know, important. That was a big thing in Lenin. And I think a lot of the ultra-lefts or left communists, whatever you want to call them, they kind of, they have this idea similar to syndicalists, that really what matters is workers' direct action at the workplace. And, you know, that's, you know, the most important thing. And almost everything else is kind of a distraction from that. And so that comparison, I think, makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, of course, there would be tension with anarchists on this question or syndicalists because what he's defending is the ability for some kind of collective terror and or or some kind of state, you know, terror. Well, yeah, and the left communists would have had no problem with that. Like, they would, they, like, you know, I mean, the KAPD was, you know, was really saw itself as a vanguard party that was, you know, going to, you know... They were not against inflicting a revolutionary terror. I think that's not like yeah, that doesn't come till later. This is more till Kot. This is more about Kot against like people like Kotsky and Bernstein that he'd be arguing against, who you know kind of are like, oh, the Russian Revolution was too violent, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, a lot of this is also um, Lenin kind of trying to draw a line or on sort of the art of compromise, and he sort of defends oh, yeah. the Brest li- uh, little. The Tovsk Treaty, um, saying that it was necessary. And he talks about different forms of compromise and he uses a metaphor here. He goes, quote, Imagine that your car is held up by armed bandits. You hand them over your money, passport, revolver, and car. <laughs> In return, you see you are rid of the of the pleasant company of the bandits. This is unquestionably a compromise. Um, it would, however, be difficult to find a sane man who would declare such a compromise to be inadmissible on principle, or who would call the compromiser an accomplice of the bandits. Our compromise with the bandits of German imperialism was just that kind of compromise. Um, and he basically takes the line that uh, if if you compromise kind of where objective conditions leave you really no other choice, that the working masses won't really hold that against you, and rightfully so. But it's when you personally benefit from compromising is when it's like um... – but he he goes on to say it's where you personally benefit. It's to your own benefit at the expense of others. That's what makes it opportunism and not compromise. Because if you think about it, any struggle is going to have to end at a certain point. At some point, you know, the workers and the boss make a compromise that the workers will not be on strike anymore and they will get X, you know, you know, demand given from the employer. So that's basically a compromise, you could say. You know, the most basic wage strike you could say, is a compromise. And this is kind of like the, the argument of a lot of the left communists as well. The unions are just, you know, there to enforce this compromise. And so really they're completely reactionary and need to be destroyed by revolutionary workers' councils. <laughs> right. I, 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 the point that a poli- uh, he says a political leader who desires to be useful to the revolution must be able to distinguish concrete cases of compromises that are inexcusable and are expression of opportunism and treachery. And I think what you really lose with hard left communism is the distinction between 
doing something smart and doing something unacceptable. Yes. <laughs> and um, w- without some kind of notion of betrayal, you know, whatever structuralist Marxism one wants to... Oh, yeah. I mean, left communists can't comprehend the difference between, like, you know, doing... You know, something with the DSA, doing a, a common united front project with the DSA and, like, I don't know, like, working with the Democrat Party itself, for example, or, you know. And there's a certain structuralist, there's a cer- well, there's a certain structuralist logic to that that I don't, you know, think one can get around until you see a formal break. Um, on the other hand, like, what w- the later sections of this, some of it I do think is relevant to the debate about the DSA and some of the problems that I have with uh, the way people are engaging, not necessarily the concept of doing it, which I find kind of seductive, but not seductive to rejoin the DSA because I was once a member. Well, and this is kind of an elemental problem um, for revolutionaries is that you want to, you want to overthrow the current system, but you inhabit that current system. And so, you know, I, there's a, it's very understandable to, have this impulse that a lot of anarchists have, especially when you're suspicious of leadership, to just have kind of like this set of eternal principles that you just adhere to. And if you enact those principles and just ex- get everyone else, you know, it's, it's like a very moralistic approach to, uh, to politics where it's like, if we can just create these organizations that stick to these ironclad eternal principles, then, you know, through a sheer refusal, eventually we will, create this heroic example that will inspire everyone to revolt and then that'll overthrow the system. Um, but, you know, politics is a little more complicated than that and requires leadership because, you know, if, if Len- Lenin's metaphor is correct and that the party is basically like an army of the working class, then, you know, armies need generals and armies need tactics in order to outmaneuver their class enemies. Actual historical left communism is way different from what, like, you know, online left comms are. Like, these people, you know, they were basically Leninist. So the next section, um, left-wing communism in Germany, the leaders, the party, the class, and the masses. Um, So he starts out dissecting a particular pamphlet called uh, The Split in the Communist Party, The Spark is Lead. Um... And a few, he goes, a few quotations will suffice to acquaint the reader with that substance. Um, the Communist Party is the party of the most determined class struggle. Politically, the transitional period between capitalism and socialism is one of the proletarian dictatorship. The question arises, who is to exercise this dictatorship, the Communist Party or the proletarian class? Fundamentally, we should strive for a dictatorship of the Communist Party or for a dictatorship of the proletarian class. And so, you know, this is kind of the familiar thing that sometimes people will put forward of, um, you know, it's it is a bottom-up revolution or a top-down revolution? Um, or is it the party in charge or is the class in charge? Yeah, um, this is the classic, you know, like uh, left communist argument, basically, yeah, and you see it. You see it from anarchists too. Um, yeah, and, and and anarchists. And so Lenin retorts, 
The mere uh, presentation of the question, quote, dictatorship of the party or a dictatorship of the class, dictatorship of the leaders or dictatorship of the masses, quote, testifies to most incredibly and hopelessly muddled thinking. These people want to invent something quite out of the ordinary and in their effort to be clever, make themselves ridiculous. It is common knowledge that the masses are divided into classes, that the masses can be contrasted with classes only by contrasting the vast majority in general, regardless of division according to the status of the socialist system of production, with categories holding a definite status in the social system of production. That, as a rule, and in most cases, at least in present-day civilized countries, classes are led by political parties, that political parties, as a general rule, are run by more or less stable groups composed of the most authoritative, influential, and experienced members who are elected to the most responsible positions and are called leaders. All this is elementary. Uh, and I, didn't, I didn't know that sentence was going to be that long when I started reading it, but there you are. But it's it's, it's a classic, like, like, this is elementary. Yeah. yeah, what is this muddled anarchist thinking? This is so elementary. How can you not understand that there are classes, and those classes have parties, and those parties have leaders? And I mean... Yeah. Uh, but the the but the, I agree with Lenin here to be honest. Like he's not wrong in what he's saying. But the obvious retort is the kind of political expertise and like relationship that you have to regular proletarians changes when you become a representative, when you become part of a political apparatus, and that's like. I you know I don't like echoing yeah. I don't like echoing Michelle's but like in our contemporary situation there's a very distinct sense of the political class you know this podcast is called Swamp Side Chats in part because of the swamp discourse like um there there is a class problem with representing the proletariat like there there has yeah. to be a, some thorough democratic institutions I mean, that. yeah, that is the kind of the point that McNair makes, you know, because he recognizes this problem as well, that there's a problem of bureaucracy. But I think this, he recognizes, you know, the left comms are recognizing a real problem. But the thing is, is that what they're doing, that they choose to do instead of kind of, you know, controlling the bureaucrats, is to try to dodge them completely and rely on the spontaneity of mass strikes and of the proletariat to kind of spontaneously figure out its own thing. And then, there's, some, there's something so, seductive about that, you know, like if, if that was a sustainable worldview, like that, would, that would be really, ideal. <laughs> but the thing is, when you think that way and you think that everything really comes down to the leaders have to let the masses, you know, be spontaneous, you really lose any kind of ability to have a systematic planned strategy. And, and, it, and, and it, also, it disables strategic thinking because it's just, well, the spontaneity, we won't figure it out. Spontaneity of the masses, you know, they don't need leaders, you know. But it also, like, un, oh, like overplays the role that, like, quote, leaders have. Like, if the masses are going to do something, you know, it's not necessarily, like, what, you know, Kasama Shawant or something wants is going to make that happen. <laughs> yeah, it's just that the masses use leaders as much as, you know— the leaders use them, I guess. It's the people are only going to get behind a leader on mass if they agree with their general, you know, suggestion of how to change something. Lenin also has a um, particular explanation for how this sort of discourse came about, and he points it um, to something that Marx and Engels identified in the years 1852 and 1892 from Britain, and he basically says, "quote." That country's exclusive position led to the emergence from the masses of a semi-petty bourgeois opportunist, quote, labor aristocracy. The leaders, the leaders of this labor aristocracy were constantly going over to the bourgeoisie and were directly or indirectly on its payroll. 
Marx earned the honor of incurring the hatred of these disreputable persons by openly branding them as traitors. Present-day 20th century imperialism has given a few advanced countries an exceptionally privileged position, which everywhere in the Second International has produced a certain type of traitor, opportunist, and social chauvinist leaders who maintain the interests of their own craft, their own section of the labor aristocracy. It's I a mean, bit it's a bit like typologistic, like, ah, yes, you can reduce it to their level of class interest. I mean, there's there's an element of truth to that. But, yeah, I mean, he is talking about a kind of, like, class tendency that can manifest in the swamp, in the political, in the wrong way. What he's describing is a tendency for the labor bureaucracy to align itself with national imperialism in order to get a better deal for their section of the working class. So it's it's a result that comes from the bureaucratic, proprietarial type thinking that bureaucrats have, you know, that I have my clientele and I need to get them like the best deal, even if it's at the expense of other people, because that will be the best for me. It's also an accommodation to imperialism. And when you have you know, a heavily imperialistic nation, obviously, you know, it's easier to, you know, kind of promote these kind of politics to win favor of the ruling class and and get favors from them. So I think what he's describing does have some merit in the sense that there is this labor aristocracy that's just so economistic and self-serving that it will politically betray the working class. By ignoring the broader international political situation of the proletariat and the overall question of which class holds power, um, you're pitting the short and medium-term interests of the proletariat against the long-term interests of the proletariat. And in that, I mean, I think the class critique does hold up. Um, but this this is just tied directly to the reformist political kind of detrius that ends up clogging the proletarian channels. And I don't know if it cuts across things that neatly. No, wait, it's section six is what we're moving on to, right? Yeah. Yeah, he says um, kind of more about the uh, the Kotsky connection. I thought this was interesting. The abolition of classes means not merely ousting the landowners and the capitalists. That is something we accomplish with comparable ease. It also means abolishing the small commodity producers, and they cannot be ousted or crushed. We must learn to live with them. They can and must be transformed and re-educated only by means of very prolonged, slow, and cautious organizational work. They surround the proletariat on every side of a petty bourgeois atmosphere which permeates and corrupts the proletariat and constantly causes among the proletariat relapses in the petty bourgeois spineless disunity individualism and alternating modes of exaltation and dejection. And so I think kind of what he's saying is that that um, there is this influence of the petty bourgeois on the working class that, that, that happens basically because the petty bourgeois are the controllers of culture. They're, you know, their, their ideology is basically the mass ideology, and it's constantly kind of permeating the workers. And, it's, it, it's, it, and, and I think there's a way that it kind of becomes part of people's habits of thoughts, no matter what political persuasion they are. And, you know, they're, they're petty bourgeois or just bourgeois society itself creates certain habits of thoughts that are in, inculcated in the people and don't just simply get destroyed with the decree, you know? Well, it's it's not just a habit of thought. It's a mode of kind of how people are used to reproducing themselves or like use, like the people's horizons 
might be kind of flattened to the individual level on such a regular basis that the short-term struggles take this form of you could call petty bourgeois ideology but you know we could we would might just think of as like the neoliberal self or the, the rational choice self well know? i think it's almost even different from that because like the petty bourgeois ideology seems to offer an escape from the alienation of a like heavily depersonalized mode of production right it's like i'm i can i can make my own shit and be in charge of my labor 100% and then just take my stuff to market. and But I'll, at least I'll be in charge in the workshop of producing whatever, or the fields of producing whatever I produce. And I'm not subject to this, like, large impersonal system that will, you know, basically extract, turn me into, like, a pure subject of, the, of labor, you know? Well, that conflicts with what comes right afterwards, which is the strictest centralization and discipline are required within the political party of the proletariat in order to counteract this, in order that the organizational role of the proletariat and that its principal role may be exercised correctly, successfully, victoriously. And it's not, it's not that I disagree that there needs to be some like strong imposition of proletarian interest as like the political structuring principle. Like that is the whole point of the dictatorship of the proletariat. That is the mechanism through which, you know, something like communism would be imposed on people that may or may not want to lose their property regardless of whether they would get more back. Um, but yeah, it, again, it overemphasizes how much that this can be a matter of discipline and it has to be sort of a matter of incentive structure, really. You have to kind of get in the lizard brain and make it worth their while. Yeah, but uh, you know, like I said, you know, it's it's not that the 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 thing that the left communists would disagree with, I think, is um, not that you needed centralization and discipline, like I said, but more so the idea of that you know we have to kind of slowly erode small commodity production peacefully, and that the dictatorship of the proletariat, he says, you know, it it means a persistent struggle bloody and bloodless, violent and peaceful, military and economic, educational and administrative against forces and traditions of the old society. And so what he's kind of saying is a lot of the dictatorship of the pro doesn't mean we can just, we, we don't just smash the petty proprietors and peasantry, but we have to kind of make societal measures to incorporate them into socialized production. And we a lot of it is, you know, going to be just campaigns of education, economic changes, but there, as well as, you know, military aspects which yeah kind of malice kind of act like is the only aspect yeah i'm definitely you know voicing my approval for more of a new economic policy kind of approach and like for what kautsky describes in the social revolution and it's yeah, that's it's what i had in mind of, but it, you know. it's it's amazing how you can read a passage of Lenin and see how, you know, a Kautskyist and a Stalinist and with their ways of dealing with the peasantry could both be like, yes, comrade Lenin is right. And, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think you could necessarily justify the way Stalin dealt with the peasantry using Lenin's writings on the peasantry, because by 1920, he had realized this, that, you know, the collectivization of the peasantry is going to be very gradual and it was not going to be this violent, forced struggle that Stalin made it into. Like he had already realized that that was not a road you wanted to go down. But you are right that you know there's enough stuff about discipline and centralization that you know I can see that one of the problems of his text is really, like I said, how it's used in that you know 
the, the way that, you know, sex use it, the way that Leninist groups use it, the kind of, that's all the stuff about centralization and unity and leaders, you know, that's good, you know, to inculcate like members of a sect into agreeing with the leadership and, yeah. you know, and when they question a lot of your opportunistic stuff, you can kind of point to Lenin, but go, oh, that's ultra leftism, which is what Lenin, you know, says, blah, blah, blah. And that's the problem with this text is kind of how it can be used for reformist ends, basically. You know, because it is, you know, making a lot of correct points, but the way people use Lenin means that it can be used in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, he's vague on exactly the points that you would want him to be clear on. 